Welcome back to Book of Mormon Central. Come follow me with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello, hello, shalom. Welcome to Leviticus. Leviticus. So Levi Iticus. So you know exactly what it is by the title for the tribe of Levi. For the entire Old Testament so far, we've had a narrative, right? Story from Adam, the Eden, all, all the, the way, way through, through the Exodus, story time, right? The whole time. This is different. This is an instruction manual, right? Yeah, it's the Levitical priesthood manual. Right. So we just left off with kind of Aaron, the building of the tabernacle. Aaron and the priesthood, what they wear, why they wear it, and everything. And now we get... Setting up of society. And and now, okay, let's talk about... here's. I feel like the whole priesthood manual, if it could be summed up in in a few words, is sort of how you ended last time. It is taking the sacred and removing it from the common and taking the pure from the impure. And it's really entering what was required to enter into the Lord's service. It's really beautiful. Yeah. So, so how's how's the book of Leviticus set up? How how's well, how does you know, it work? I went through this last time, and I took out a pencil, and I said, okay, chapter one through seven, sacrifices, great. Then we start talking about the priests and what's required there, and then we go on to this purification and what's required for holiness, and then all of a sudden, I'm back at information on the priests, and I keep going through. Oh, here's some special feasts, and then I'm back on sacrifices, and I'm I thought, isn't there any organization of this? So I was reading some commentaries, and one of them suggested that the entire book of Leviticus is a complete chiastic, chiasmus, so that the first thing is mirror-imaged as the last, and the middle is mirror-imaged in the middle. And it just flowed perfectly, especially when I remembered that the book of Leviticus is the third of the five books of Moses. So it is the central book. So it is the chiastic center. And in Hebraic poetry and ancient poetries that use these chiasms as their form of parallelism or their form of poetry, they always put the most important in the very middle. So where does all this point to? And the book of Leviticus should tell us what the whole thing's about. And it's Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. And then on either side of that, you have chapters on how to become more pure. On either side of that, instructions for the priesthood holders. And then on either side of that, at the very beginning and at the very end, these rituals. And some of them are sacrifices and some of them are festivals. But they're mosaic rituals that were being asked to be lived by these people. So that really helped me look at Leviticus differently by realizing all this repetition is because they had to memorize their things. And so by memorizing it in repetitive patterns, it was easier. And knowing that the ancient languages put the most important in the center allows me to understand better what Moses is trying to teach me. I I just thought that was powerful. It makes a lot of sense, especially in this idea of memorization and, you know, another way I like to hear it is learning it by heart, right? Yeah. And another thing that I always go to for my commentary on the Old Testament is the Book of Mormon. I think the Book of Mormon is our best commentary on the Old Testament. And I love 2 Nephi 11, 4. And I'm just going to read this one to help us understand the Book of Leviticus. Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given. For all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. And in the past, I tried to go through that Exodus cycle for the whole book of Exodus, looking at how each of the points of history typified of our Savior. And now as we look at the temple, I see it not only typifying of our Savior, but it typifies of my worship as well. It typifies of Christ, pointing me there and pointing the early children of Israel there, and then exemplified in our Savior's life. And then do you remember in um, Mosiah 13, there was a law given them, yea, a law of performances and ordinances to keep them in remembrance of God. 
and their duty toward him. That's Mosiah 13.30. So I look at Leviticus and I try to say, okay, where is it pointing to Christ? And these performances and these ordinances or these rituals, whatever, how are they helping me remember God? And I see them a little bit like our sacrament. How does this sacrament help me remember God? I think that's such an important thing, especially in context. Everything that happened to Israel, the miracles, was a couple months. Everything from the first plague. Plague of the blood, of the water. All the way to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. How long was that? Well, it was at least a year. But that that's a lot to happen in a year. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I see what you're <laughs> so, saying. Okay, so okay. No, 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 no. It's got to be within Pentecost because Passover to Pentecost is 50 right, days. Right. So however long it took before that. So yeah, a so few I months, see, a few months. I see how, and yet yeah, we're reading like how often they forget. I mean, they just part of the Red Sea and they're whining about water, you know, and it's just like, did you? Well, they're thirsty. Right? They're thirsty. Yeah, we get that. And, and then by the, by the time they, they finally get through this hardship and see these repeated miracles, you know, they're prepared. I'll do what the Lord wants me to do. Well, and it took him 40 gives, years for some of them. Right. And then he they gives had them to the die temple. out. Yeah, and then he gives them the temple. And he gives them the temple. Right. right. Remember. Right. I and need you to remember because this is going to be hard. And this book forget. of Leviticus is a, not only a priesthood manual, but it's a temple manual. Leviticus to me purifies Israel's past and it consecrates their future. And you mentioned before how it ties into the tabernacle, at least, ties into the Abrahamic covenant as we are covenanting once again with God to always follow him. And it was the same covenant that was given to Isaac and the same covenant to Jacob. You know, here we are again, promising that we will always remember him. It's the same covenant that I make with my sacrament and my baptism and my, you know, it's, it's beautiful to see this. But we can purify our past through repentance and we can consecrate our future to live to God. So who is Leviticus for? I mean, obviously everyone gets to read it. I mean, we're reading it. Yeah, but I really feel like it's for the priesthood holders. It's those who are working in the temple, in the tabernacle or the temple. And so for me, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I feel like it is a special book just to help me understand the temple. Now, I realize that it's a code of conduct for men and whatever, but it's it's really beautiful. So, so let's yeah, jump let's, in. Let's get into it. Oh, I forgot to read one more. This one is not from the Book of Mormon. It's from Adam's record recorded by Enoch in the book of Moses, chapter 5, verse 7, where he, do you remember when Adam is making sacrifice? Right. And the Lord tells him, this is in similitude of my only begotten, who is full of grace and truth. We have so many of these first few chapters on sacrifices and the requirements. And I think if we have this commentary from Moses and Mosiah, in mind. It really helps us to keep things in perspective. Everything is to point to Christ. So as we look at chapter one and two and three, and we're introduced to so many different sacrifices, I used to have a really hard time and I'd I'd keep a list of them. Okay, the burnt offering is completely burnt. That's the only one. The hide is given to the worshiper, but everything else. That is not very often. The majority of the time, the meat was given to the worshiper. So we come, we sacrifice, we give our all to God. We give him our very best. We aren't allowed to use this animal again for procreation, you know, as our bank. Oh, he's a good, strong one. There's no blemish here. Let's use this one to be the father for the next generation. No, we don't do that. We give our very best to God. The sacrifice is such a beautiful image of our trust in God. He will provide for us, even if I take the best that I have and give. Well, we're not really giving a lot. The, the part that the Lord takes on most of the sacrifices are the fat and a kidney and a few other things like that. And they're unedible anyway. Well, we shouldn't be eating too much of the animal fat anyway. Right, right. <laughs> and then the right shoulder is given to the priest's family 
and the priest to feed his families, and then the rest of the animals given back. So I really feel like that's how it is usually when we make sacrifices for the Lord. We always get back something even more useful and better when we trust in Him. But it did help me when I started writing out these sacrifices to learn that this burnt offering is the first one that they mention. And I was confused on, okay, I get a sin offering when you do something wrong. I get a peace offering. I get a thanksgiving offering. But what's this wave offering in this? Well, it helps to look at other translations or to read it in different languages because it's something being elevated or something that is being lifted up. And it's the priest's offering. The priest is being lifted up as a servant of God. So that was helpful for me to see how these sacrifices were elaborated on, just writing them out. But the message for all of them are, it's all vicarious. We're taking the sins of a person or the gratitude of a person or the shortcomings or of the nation and vicariously placing it on an altar. And the altar is sanctified. We've already gone through that seven days of becoming pure. And that altar then is an example of our Savior. The altar is our Savior. The animal is our Savior. The horns are our Savior. The blood is our Savior. You know, everything about this sacrifice is creating a better understanding of the depth of what the atonement will provide if we're going to be looking for it, which is exactly what the Book of Mormon says to do. But this vicarious nature all points to Christ. It's all vicarious in the temple. It's all vicarious. Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I, again, you know, you brought up a fantastic scripture in Moses. This is a similitude. Yeah. You know, so so I was thinking of the same things, like, you know, the burnt offering, a sacrifice without blemish, clearly, right? The wave, you're saying. Yes. Like all of these are very, very easy in hindsight. Well, and the wave offering, at, right? I, I talked about the, the heave. I meant to say the heave. But the wave one is the priest takes it and swings it towards the Holy of Holies. You know, mm-hmm. we're taking our gift and taking it to God. It's it's this symbolic movement. But they're all just signs and tokens of what they represent. Yeah. It's fascinating to me that he's giving this to the people of Israel right now. I think it's in a way trying to replace... Well, it's not much of a stretch trying to replace what they picked up in Egypt, right? Go on. I don't understand. So so with Egypt, you know, they, they you know, with the worshiping of idols, th- oh, those gods, yes. right? Let me teach you how to worship God yes. correctly. L- let me give you yeah. the symbols that you can physically attach so I can teach you spiritual things. And so I can teach you more about Jehovah. Right. So you can I understand. I want you to really learn to understand Jehovah. Yeah. And to keep it sacred for hundreds of years. Well, the other thing that's tricky, though, is the only people doing these is this small portion. It's one of the tribes— and then it's only a portion of that tribe. And then it's only the males in great shape who could actually do the sacrifice, actually go into the sanctuary because right, right. the whole tribe of Levi is not allowed in. Anyway, I hope that the stories were passed on so the whole people could see the symbolic importance. But I know for me now, going back and looking at it, it enriches my temple worship. So what's it like for an individual Say just a normal priesthood holder who's going to go into the tabernacle. Well, let's do that. But what's what's the typical experience like for? We touched upon this, you know, briefly earlier. But what's uh, what's it like for just a normal? So everyone has to bring their sacrifices to the temple, but they just don't get to perform the sacrifice because the priest is acting in the place of God. But everybody has so to bring they get in. To watch. The yes, sacrifice. they get to watch. And in the tabernacle period. The hands that were laid on the animal's head to vicariously transfer the sin onto the animal from the sinner, that could be done not necessarily just by the priest, but also by the person who had 
gone through the repentance process and was now wanting to complete the repentance process. They've gone to their priesthood leader. They're now ready as a worshiper to be cleansed. And so part of the cleansing is going to that priesthood holder and putting your hands on the head of the animal and asking that animal who represents our Savior to take your sins away. So I think it's very symbolic for these worshipers. They have to bring their own property. They have to bring something of their that they've raised. Or that they've grown. Right. Or that they've um, squeezed the juice out if it's a drink offering or something, you know. But in fact, the peace offering is one of those that men and women could bring. But it's interesting that it has to be something of their own. It can't be like a wild animal that's already slain, you know, roadkill, whatever. Right, it right. can't can't be that. They've got to have it as their own. And then it must be the best that they have. It's not something that's going to die soon. It's pretty easy. Let's just kill that one anyway. It's yeah. not going to go. No, yeah. it's got to be, you know, in the prime of their life. And it's got to be a strong one. The absolute best you're giving away to the Lord. It's such an expression of trust. So even just the common children of Israel, they have to bring their animals when they are going through the repentance process. They have to bring their animals when they're going through their annual gifts or a birth, like the birth of a son, you bring either the lamb or the turtle doves at day 40 and the birth of a daughter is day 80. But, you know, these purification processes were given to everybody, not just the priest. And I think it's so consistent with what we were talking about earlier about giving God our best. And that includes our Sabbath worship, that we want to give God our absolute best. I think it's pretty powerful. So what's it like for a Levite? You know, there's and then okay. So the Levites I mentioned earlier, they're the people who clean up afterward. They're the ones who are actually slaying the animals. They wash the animals. In some places, it says that they can start working at 25, and some places it's 30. I know the priests are 30 always, but you have to be strong enough to heft up these animals and to lift them up. You know, and you only serve for a, a few decades after the age of 50. In some accounts in Leviticus, you have finished your service at the temple which I thought was very young, actually. But I didn't realize that they were only serving for a short period of time. And I don't know if that was added later or if that were also at the time of Moses. But they had so many priesthood holders later on that they were able to say, okay, you serve when you're the strongest. You serve from 30 to 50, or you serve from 25 to 50 if you're a member of the Levitical tribe. But at that point, when you come to the temple for the first time to serve as a priest or as a Levite, you would be given sacred garments that you would put on in the temple, in the sanctuary, in the sacred space, after you have been washed in the laver, the brazen sea, they called it, and you wash your hands and your feet many times in between the full immersions. And then you have the symbolism of offering sacrifice to make sure that you have been purified before you can come before the Lord. They're, and the Levites and the priests were anointed, and then they're given these beautiful white clothing that is described in many, many places, but that includes a, a white pants and a white tunic with a hole in the middle that you put over, and then a white sash and, and different parts of the underclothing as well as the overclothing to help you remember that you are in God's service, that he has bought you back and that you are serving him at that point in that room, in that sanctuary. And then the Levite would either help with the sacrificing of the animals or as a musician. Two times a day, the Levites um, stand across the front. Well, this is all later traditions. I don't know about the time of the tabernacle, but the musicians in the tribe of Levi would stand and blow their shofars, blow their ram's horns and sing the priestly benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious. You know, that beautiful 
priestly benediction. They would recite the Shema, which is the in the phylacteries later on in the New Testament and on the doorposts, they put it there. These beautiful, we'll talk about that when we get to Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's the verses that they quote about loving God more than anyone else and teaching them to your children. The Levites also were the custodians. They were the cleaning folks, and they did all the work at, before and after everything. Um, so all those animals and all the excrement that goes on, you know, they're the ones who are scraping everything up and cleaning everything. And it's the priests who usually put their hands on the animal on the altar. And you start that work at age 30. So it's separate from a normal Levite, right? Yes. So the priests are only the descendants of Aaron. So it's a much smaller group. And as a priest begins his service at age 30, when he receives authority to serve, he goes through the same process as a Levite, but he gets to go beyond. So he's washed, he's anointed, he's clothed, and then he will have the opportunity to actually enter into the sanctuary. And that's that holy place and the Holy of Holies is just reserved on the Day of Atonement for the high priest that we'll talk about in chapter 16. But I think think that there is such a beautiful image if we look at the words and the description that we got back in Exodus that the sanctuary is to go back to the Garden of Eden. And we're trying to enter into the presence of the Lord. And the sanctuary includes the menorah, which was the tree of life, where we want to be able to partake without our sins to enter into the presence of the Lord. And then you've got the prayers right before the veil that are constantly ascending. And you've got the nourishment that represent the 12 tribes or the that also represent the face of Christ's presence, the bread of his presence is how it's translated by Tyndale. And as we look at a priest or a Levite going, th just a priest, I guess, he starts out and as he begins the way back to the tree of life, which is the word that's used in Genesis. Do you remember when Christ or when Jehovah and God say, we don't want Adam and Eve to partake of this fruit of the tree of life in their sins, because then they're going to die right. in their sins. Right. So we will put angels to guard the way of the tree of life. So that was the first name of Christianity. It was called the way. And I see that consistent with the way of a priest. It is the way back to the tree of life. He is first washed, anointed, clothed. He offers sacrifice. His sins are forgiven. They are vicariously taken by the Lamb of God, literally. And then um, he's able to come into the sanctuary, which is back into the presence of Eden. And he's able to not only pray at the altar of incense, but he is able to be lit by the light of that menorah and partake of the tree of life. And then if and see the presence of the Lord there in that Edenic environment. And if you were Aaron's first son, 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 right. then you would have the opportunity to go completely all the way back into the presence of the Lord. On one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, you would be allowed to go through the veil after a whole ritual of sacrifices and scapegoats and everything else purified enough to enter into the presence of the Lord one day a year, one person. So does he symbolize all of Israel? The, or high, the, priest? the high priest? Yeah. What's the symbolism there? Obviously, there's a Christian symbol there, right? You know, yeah, as, yeah. As Paul says it is Christ. He says we have one great high priest. That's in the book of Hebrews. It's beautiful. Paul does a great job on that. Or whoever is the author. I'm sorry you can hear my sure. preference on that one. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, But I think I'm the only person that I know that, that believes that. But I'll find out in heaven, I'm sure. But the beauty of being able to go back and be the high priest 
And the challenges of it is you do take on all of the sins of Israel on that Day of Atonement. Should we just start there in chapter 16? Should we we go there since that's the center of the chiasmus anyway? We've already talked a little bit about the sacrifices. We can talk about them again afterward. But chapter 16 has this beautiful Day of Atonement. It's all the other feast days for Israel are days of rejoicing and happiness. It's a party. They, they call them feast. You know, it's the feast of unleavened bread and the feast of this. The Day of Atonement is a day of fasting. It's the only day they fast that year. It's a solemn Sabbath. And I don't know how many Jews still fast on that day. But here in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, it is a day when the high priest has been preparing for a long period of time, at least a week, to prepare to come into this holy place. And in verse 2, it says, now, you don't go into the holy place, meaning the holy of holies. You don't go through this veil, except this one time a year, or else you're going to die. Don't do it. You know, I have my bounds. I have my regulations when and where I will allow people in. And don't do it except for this one. So that's verse 2. And then it's interesting. He says he wants the high priest to take off his colorful, bright, happy, Edenic gardens, and he wants him to put on the white linens. He wants him to look like the other priest. He wants him to represent the purity. The white linen is always purity, whether you're reading it in the Psalms or you're reading it in the Book of Mormon. The beautiful imagery of that white linen is the purity that can come through the atoning sacrifice of our God. So these are different than the clothes for glory and beauty. Yes, they are. They are. He's now looking like everybody else. He's wearing the white robe, which, of course, is beautifully symbolic of our Savior's robe that he wore at the end of his life. Let's look at verse 5. After they're washed again and their clothing is changed, he takes two goats, two kids, and one is going to be a sin offering and one is going to be a scapegoat. And the one that takes the sin offering is called the Lord's goat. This is verse 9, the Lord's lot. And the scapegoat also has an important role. But I feel sometimes like I become the one who the Lord takes my sins and I'm allowed to go out in the wilderness. I'm allowed to not fulfill that. I forgot to mention the high priest has first offered already an offering prior to this. And then he goes on and offers this beautiful reconciliation of these rituals that starts with bringing incense into the sacred space, into the Holy of Holies. And after he's already offered this sin offering, then he brings in the incense, and then he has a bullock offering. And he sprinkles this bullock's offering seven times, always symbolic of being whole or complete or perfected. And then come the two goats, the scapegoat and the Lord's goat, And he sprinkles the blood of the Lord's goat. I forgot to mention that the high priest will put his hands on these animals. And he first has to be purified himself. And then he'll take another animal and be purified for the sins of Israel. And then on the scapegoat, he puts all the sins, or the Lord's goat, excuse me. He puts all the sins of Israel on the Lord's goat. And then the Lord's blood is sprinkled, or the goat's blood is sprinkled on the veil, on the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting to see how many times you see seven sevens repeated, not just in this chapter. I couldn't find them in this chapter for all of them, but you do find them when other chapters refer back to this day and you can count them up. In this chapter, we just have three times where they're sprinkled seven times, which is still beautifully symbolic of our Savior and our Godhead. And I'm looking at verse 11. One of the offerings After the Lord's lot is another book, which is again a sin offering. The whole thing is all about the atonement is needed. 
And here's the seven, verse 14. He shall take of the blood of the book and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat. So that's already in the Holy of Holies. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood of his finger seven times. And the numbers, everything about the ritual is symbolic and beautiful. And I see the fact that Christ's blood is merciful. Christ's atoning sacrifice in our behalf, his death, allows mercy to be given to me, allows mercy to be given to you, allows mercy to be given to all the sons and daughters of Adam, that all may receive immortality. And those who receive the gift of the Savior's atonement through repentance will be able to also receive that gift of eternal life, if we are valiant in our witnesses. But they take the goat that is the scapegoat, and this is now verse 21. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all of their transgressions in their sins and putting upon them the head of the goat, he shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. So I don't know. Some people have thought that that was the image of Satan. Sometimes I think it's the image of, of all of us. But the idea is that person is not killed for his sins. That goat, whatever it is is allowed to bear the iniquities in the land that is not inhabited. He just goes out. So I'm sure we'll find out more symbolism on that as we continue to study. And I would love to hear anyone's insights on it <laughs> as they study more, because obviously we each just have as much time as we can to dive into these things. But this in verse 31 is a Sabbath of Sabbaths. It says here in chapter 16, verse 31, it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you. And ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. This is, becomes an annual festival, an annual day of fasting, where not only are the priests serving the Lord, but it will be a rest unto them. And do you remember in the Doctrine and Covenants, I think it's section 88, where it says, those who enter into the rest of the Lord are entering into their exaltation. Well, verse 30, just before that, you know, can't clear that up. For, for that day shall the priest make an atonement for you. Or to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Yeah. And then rest. Yeah. So we enter into his rest after that. We can then partake of the fruit of the tree of life, or the high priest does it for us. Mm -hmm. But understanding this day of atonement gives me an enormous, enormous appreciation for being able to worship in the temple. As an adopted person into the tribe of Israel, as a female, I'm not from the tribe of Levi, I'm not from the tribe of Aaron, and yet... I am allowed to enter into the presence and stand in front of sacred space and worship as only the high priest did in that day and age. Now, fortunately, we no longer have blood offerings. Fortunately, it is all a broken heart and contrite spirit, but we have to take it as seriously or it will not be as efficacious as, you know, we need to take it as seriously as they did. I think so. Yeah. It's just powerful though, isn't it? Yeah. There's so much here that to digest, you know, among these symbols. But I love what you said about my own temple worship, right? Yeah. This is such a rare opportunity when you look across the dispensations of time that we have to go to the temple. And when we look at the chapters after this, I mentioned that they're a mere image of what we saw, but I think it's still helpful to see the beautiful messages that are taught here, even though it's a lower law, if they lived it entirely, it would still be a law that comes from their heart. You know, these sacrifices. I think we see that from the Book of Mormon, oh. right? You know, especially after the Savior came and there's confusions. Like, no, you live the law, 
as it is until the Savior comes and changes it and you'll get all the blessings you need, right? Yeah, that's a great example. The sanctity of life is so clearly represented in the entire book of Leviticus as we look as blood is something sacred and it's something holy and you keep it separate. And so much of the laws of either sexual purity or anything else is this separation between the clean and the holy and the unclean, I mean, or the ordinary, as I mentioned at the very beginning. But I want to look also at chapter 19. Okay. It's one of my favorites. Some people say this is the middle of the Torah. And, you know, I've never counted out the words in Hebrew, so I really don't know exactly where the middle is. When I got online, different people had different ideas on exactly where the middle is. But Israel's commanded to be holy and to live righteously. And right in the middle of this chapter, in verse 18, the Lord's been asking them to be righteous. And he says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So this is not the new commandment. At the Last Supper, Christ gives the new commandment. I want you to love like I love. But this is what Christ says is one of the two central messages of the entire law of Moses. And here it is in this one of the central places in the law of Moses. And I think it's powerful that if they had been living just this law alone, we wouldn't have had the misunderstanding of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth really is a law of retribution. No, it, it's, it's not actually. The priests are given the example here that there's no room for grudges. There's no room for animosity. There's only room for love. And so when Christ is asked, what's the most important laws? He quotes Deuteronomy and Leviticus 19, 18. And interestingly, other rabbis before the Savior, and I'm thinking specifically of the master teacher Hillel, who is the teacher of Gamaliel, who is the teacher of Paul, much of the Mishnah is quoting Hillel. And Hillel was asked, Master, what are the greatest? And he said, if I could summarize the whole law, it's to love God and to love your neighbor. And then he goes on, he said, the rest is just commentary. And I'm grateful that right here in Leviticus, it's spelled out. So when they come to Christ and say, Master, what's the greatest? And he says, it's right in the very center of the very center. It's right here. It's right next to the Day of Atonement. It's Leviticus 19.18. I love that it's next to the Day of Atonement. Yeah. Scriptures. Well, you know, a little, bit, a little bit different. They've got a, little, a few sacrifices in between there. And they repeat the Ten Commandments, interestingly. Not all of them, but they have no stealing, no lying, no swearing right before this in chapter 19. So as I mentioned, the Decalogue is repeated regularly. And I don't know enough about Hebrew poetry to realize that there's probably some parallels some there, too, there, yeah, yeah. that are meanings. But the death penalty is prescribed for just a few things, very, very few things. And one of them is child sacrifice. That's chapter 20. Life is sacred. So for me, that ties it back to the Abrahamic again. revolution again. Yeah. Again, beautifully. That covenant. Yeah, and that's why they felt so strongly. But Chapter 21, 22, 23, it's all about how the priests can become more holy or how the sacrifices can help us become more sanctified. And symbolically, they are beautiful doorways to our Savior. And the three pilgrimage feasts are back again in 23, just like we talked about earlier. The major ones where you were to come down to the temple from wherever you lived were early in the spring, the Passover, that's verse 4 in 23. And then in the later spring, Pentecost, that's verse 15 through 22, that's the Feast of Weeks. And then finally, the Feast of the Trumpet or Atonement, as well as has different names there, but 
when you come for the the harvest, the end of the harvest, the early fall festival that we sometimes refer to as the Feast of the Tabernacles. That's verse 33 to 44 is that Feast of the Tabernacles. And those are the three great ones when they're dwelling in those booths. But chapter 25 talks about the need for not only having the Sabbath day holy, but every seventh year to give a sabbatical year, a Sabbath year. And I haven't done that, but I think that's a great idea. Why don't we get <laughs> some of your startups? Why don't you give us a we'll every seventh year a, a break and the Jubilee every 50th year, a total break? You know, <laughs> maybe, I, I'm maybe all if in I favor. work in academia, I could do that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> I, I'm all in favor of that. But this beautiful example of the priests, I feel, is an example of my temple worship. Again, I look at the Old Testament and I better understand my Savior and I better understand my Old Testament. And the Book of Mormon is my best commentary. Do you have anything else to add on Leviticus? No, I, I am. I'm looking at 25 and, you know, this is really a side. Yeah, go right know, ahead. Yeah, but, you know, six years that shall sow the field, six years that shall prune the vineyard, gather fruit thereof, and seventh shall be the rest of the land. And just something that's been showing up in my, you know, casual studies is this new way of farming, which is yes. letting the land rest. Letting the land right? rest. It's not just about rotating crops. It's about letting, letting the, land the land rest. rest. And so I just see this. I'm like, wow, this is an early agrarian society. You know, we've both been to this place. This is this is not the land of farmers, so to speak. Right? <laughs> At least not now. Yeah, not yeah, now. Not Hopefully now. they had a little different climate then. Yeah, but the, the idea that it was... That the Lord taught the Lord these taught great how, principles yeah, these of the earth things. and that the earth, he knew the earth. He's the creator. He said, if you want it to work, let's let's do this. And yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a fantastic thing. I mean, these are people that had been in Egypt for hundreds of years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's this new place. Here's the laws. And here's a new way to do it. I'm glad you brought us back rather than ending then, because did you see the last chapter, Leviticus 27, verse 30, talks about the tithes. And I sometimes forget that this is part of the Mosaic law as well. All the tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And may we be generous with our tithes and offerings as we prepare to live the law of consecration more fully in all that we do. The tenth is the Lord. Look at verse 32. The tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. It's a great I, I, image. I've, you know, it's been wonderful to study this with you because it's it's brought it a little bit more to life. You know, Good. it's like, you know, you're reading this, like, okay, this is an instruction manual. Like, okay, <laughs> I don't know what any of this means. I'm not working in the tabernacle. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, but I've loved this idea. It's made my temple worship more poignant. Like you said, this is how I can understand my temple worship, especially through the eyes of a, of a Levite or a priest as a representative. Yeah, it helps our temple worship for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, God bless you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.